Uh, Abba Father, thank you so much for this morning and the people that are here. I believe they are here for a very, very specific purpose. And I ask for a lot of grace, a lot of wisdom right now, please. Um, Lord, we are fearfully and wonderfully made, certainly made in your image, and boy, are we complex. And we need your grace and your truth and your wisdom. Holy Spirit, go to those secret places in our hearts where, where there's no English language, there's no speech that can get at some of the secret things inside of us. But we can meet you there, and you can heal. Ask for a lot of grace, a lot of wisdom this morning, a lot of listening, uh, the ability to, to actually believe in things that we can't see and have faith. Uh, please bless now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Christ is And said this series that we're jumping in on is all about how the self-concept of Jesus Christ can really reveal the meaning of discipleship in the New Testament. So today is going to be our intercession. Intercession, we're going to dig in deep and really do our best to get a grip on what, what the backstory is on these things. So to start with, uh, I want to talk about this picture that you see on the slide. This was painted in 1954, released on the Saturday Evening Post by a famous painter named Norman Rockwell. It's called Girl at Mirror. Rebecca, you've seen it before. Uh, Lisa, some of you are smiling. You appreciate the picture. I want to point out some details to it that I think you're going to appreciate. First of all, look at the doll. By the way, this girl, the model, uh, at, uh, at this time in 1954, uh, Mary Whalen, now Mary Whalen Leonard, was around 10 to 11 years of age when this painting was done by Rockwell. She's the model. And funny story about how Norman Rockwell was trying to talk to little Mary and explain to her the idea uh, that he was trying to capture, and one of which is that this little girl has decided to throw her doll aside. She's discarded the doll, tossed it to the side, so the doll is in a kind of sideways, almost upside-down position, communicating that in this little girl heart, she's a bit upside-down, that, that the childhood part of who she is has kind of been being tossed to the side, marginalized, and the idea of combing your hair and, and lipstick is going to be a new way that this young woman is going to define herself. Makes sense. Look at the magazine she's looking at. Can anybody recognize that, the woman on the cover of that magazine? Anybody? That is Jane Russell. Okay, and only us uh, folks with gray hair know who Jane Russell is. Uh, Jane Russell was the heartthrob of the universe and galaxies beyond back in the 50s and the 60s, okay? Now, during an interview, this is really fascinating. During an interview, Norman Rockwell admitted that he regrets featuring Jane Russell on that magazine cover. He regretted that because, Megan, he believed this is not how a little girl should define herself. Interesting, isn't it? Because if you know anything about Jane Russell, she was the epitome of what a male dreamed about. And she was also the epitome of what a female dreamed about because all the girls wanted to look like Jane Russell and all the boys wished their girls looked like Jane Russell, okay? That was America back in the day, all right? And there was a lot of scandal about Jane Russell even in the movies and how she was used to move Hollywood 
in the direction that it has gone. How about this? She predates Marilyn Monroe. You getting an idea of things? Okay, so this is, the, this is the Marilyn Monroe before Marilyn hit the scene, all right? And so this is a part of the cultural shift that moved us along as a nation and especially how little girls define themselves, all right? And you can put a guy in there if you want to, how guys define themselves. Is, is it by your brains? Is it by brawn? You know, by the thickness of your wallet? All these kinds of things. So uh, that's why I chose that picture. All right, so pretty interesting stuff. So let's do a little bit. Can we go to med school for just a few minutes? Just a little bit of med school. Can we handle it? So this won't hurt too bad. You're looking at uh, side view of the brain. This is the this midsection of the brain is called the limbic system. You guys know that. Talk about it a lot. This is where the the animal side of us, the emotional side of us really finds its catalytic core. So much of who we are as a basic human person with a, with a body and the biology of what it means to be human is coming right here, okay? Right here. Now, particularly this little gray uh, illustration here, that's called the amygdala, Latin for almonds, about the size and shape of an almond. Listen, that is a 125-pound Rottweiler, and it is on a chain. Hopefully it stays on the chain, all right? And when it's not happy, it's going to bark. And if it gets real upset, it's coming off the chain, it's gonna jump the fence, and we have problems because the amygdala is out of control. All right, fascinating organ. Uh, some, uh, some trivia about this, the basal ganglia, or rather the basal uh, lateral nucleus of the amygdala, its job is processing emotion in response to threat. Now the central nucleus will take it and say, hey, uh, I understand through the basal lateral zone, this is what I'm feeling. Central nucleus says, this is how I'm going to act. I feel this way, I'm going to behave this way. And it sends signals out, and boy, we can move into threat response. We, we want to fight, we want to flee, or we want to freeze and hope this stuff goes away. Uh, that's called repression, you know. Ignore it and it goes away, right? <laughs> which never happens. <coughs> Boy, it's the amygdala that is fueling all these kind of, kinds of things. Now, guess what? The amygdala processes emotion, primal emotion, and it also helps us process emotion in direct relationship with other people. Okay? Now, guess what? The amygdala has its own memory, its own memory system. And guess what? It is quick to learn and slow to forget. It's a part of the seat of where we hold grudges. Right there. It's where your grudge is going to sit. And I'm talking about the primal side of a grudge and bitterness and what the Apostle Paul said, a list of wrongs suffered. It's going to sit right there. And just like pages in a book, page after page, we can flip through, sheet by sheet, a memory of someone that has hurt us and caused deep pain. And the next time you, you encounter a human being, that amygdala's gonna thumb through every page of all the people that have done you wrong, and it's gonna advise you to do what it takes to protect yourself. <coughs> and for a lot of us, that means we go into retreat mode, or we go into attack mode, and we destroy the person that's threatening us, or at all costs, we avoid, we avoid the person that's threatening us. <clears throat> All right, a couple more things I want you to see. This is another good, good slide here. 
Uh, this is your forebrain, smartest part of your brains, right here, all right? Medial, orbital, frontal, prefrontal cortex. <laughs> That's the zone that helps you manage self-control and regulation of your emotions. Now, guess what? We're going to put two things together. The, the orbital, medial, prefrontal cortex helps you manage your relationships, your emotions, your response to people, self-control concepts right here. It's getting information from the amygdala. I don't like this person. They're threatening me. Prefrontal cortex is going to try to mediate that and say, hey, should we punch them or should we run? What, what, what should we do? Uh, I don't think it's that big of a threat. Let's calm down. I had an emergency call last night from a client that was very, very upset. They didn't like my response at all. So they, so they shut me down and said, well, I'll see you next session. And we'll talk about it then. You know, just like that, because they weren't too happy with my response on the front lobe level. They wanted to go for the juggler, and I said, no, not a good decision. Let's, let's, let's kind of ratchet this thing down a bit, okay? So this kind of stuff happens, right? Now watch this. This zone right here, this is exciting. Fusiform face area. This is the place in your brain that helps you recognize a face. That's the place that helps you recognize a face, right? And guess what? If you get some trauma to that zone of the brain, you might have a condition called prosopagnosia. You can't recognize a face. Can you imagine looking at a human being and you don't know who they are, but you kind of know them, but you're not sure because you can't recognize their face? And then they start talking and you go, oh, that's my friend Bill, or that's my friend Karen and you recognize them through the voice, but you're not blind. The part of the brain that deals with face is broken, okay? Stroke patients, and the temporal lobe processes a lot of, lot of stuff, especially auditory uh, inputs and how we hear things, uh, managing the temporal lobes. So FFA, we get to recognize the face. So let's have a little fun here. If you have a good functioning FFA, right there, temporal lobe, right? You can see this guy and you go, oh yeah, that's my friend Bill. And it makes sense, right? Cool, how that works. Now check this one out. <coughs> Your FFA is really upset right now. I just want you to know that. <laughs> We've got a little cognitive dissonance between the ears. FFA says, this is not right. Something's wrong. Now guess what? I, I, you can't turn the building over to, to rotate PowerPoint, but guess what? If I could rotate this for you, the image that appears to be distorted and skewed would literally change and look exactly like the left image that you see. Your FFA is a little confused right now. Okay. You can Google that up. Just Google Adele's upside down face, and then you can take your phone or your, your iPad and do that. You'd be like, well, that's weird. Well, that's weird. How's it? What's going on here? Well, your fusiform face area is a little confused because it's not sure what to do with that data. It's literally wired to look at faces right side up, not upside down. And when it does, it all of a sudden fails to see the bigger scope of view of your face, and it starts working on just the nose or just the eyes or something, and it, and it, it just like this is this is odd. Okay. FFA helps us recognize our faces, okay? Make sense? Now, there's a couple of things here that I think, yeah, ladies, you'll appreciate. 
that's, uh, that's really rich. So regarding newborns, uh, within hours of birth, newborns orient to the direct eye contact that their mothers provide. And in fact, they'll demonstrate preference for their mother's eyes over others, even dad's eyes, okay? The bond is so deep, a newborn will literally visually lock onto mom's eyes. Uh, newborns have the ability, in terms of audio, uh, uh, visual acuity, learn to dial in and see very efficiently at about eight to 10 inches away from mom's eyes, right <laughs> at about the distance of a mother who's going to nurse, or mother who's holding her baby at about this distance. That's the visual acuity system, maturity of the baby's eyeballs at about that age, right, as a newborn. And it gets better just within months. Their eyes are changing, all these kinds of things. A mother can recognize her baby's cry and differentiate her baby's cry from other newborns in hours. She knows. You put four or five babies in the room, they all start crying, and mom will literally dial in to her baby through her temporal lobes where she processes sound and can distinguish uh, tone and intonation and prosody of the voice. So, okay, what's the point? What's the point? There is biology in human relationship, okay? There's biology. We are literally wired for each other. Do you know that? We're wired. You're proud of some of you are holding hands right now, which is beautiful, Megan and Caleb holding hands. Right now, we're married. <laughs> yeah, married. It's okay, you know. We're, we're pretty strict at Christ Church, you know. So um, we're checking to see if there's any unmarried hand holding going on here. So. But Megan and Caleb's parietal lobe is lighting up right now because they're holding hands. That zone of the brain is lighting up where you process sensory input through touch, and they're literally relating to each other. And there's and there's they're affirming each other, which is what we long for, by the way. We long for that kind of relationship to be to have someone to give us attunement, someone to give us affirmation, someone to give us approval, these kinds of things, all very critical to mental emotional health. So, by the way, when I taught this series years ago, someone complained, I think they misunderstood me, or I'll just put it on me and say, Hey, I didn't communicate it clearly. That just because you are Let's say you embrace Christ's esteem and you overcome self-esteem. Doesn't mean you have a detached disregard for people. I think that's where the disconnect was with this particular person. I'm not saying we're just, that, we're, that if you really have the esteem of Christ, you just have no regard for other people. That's silly. Biologically, we are wired to relate to each other. And if you do have healthy Christ esteem instead of unhealthy self-esteem, it literally gives you the, the ability to have better relationships and not disregard. So, concluding statement here, those of us who have experienced consistent and normalized attunement, affirmation, protection, and moral spiritual integrity, pay attention, by both parents in a healthy marriage, you have core resources to help you flourish as an adult, if you have that. And if you don't, you're at a deficit. And you've got to work extra hard to make up for some, some deficits and loss in your life, okay? We literally need each other to heal and grow up. In fact, regarding my clients, 
uh, a, couple, a couple of observations. Number one, I deal with this issue of self-esteem and self-worth every day, almost with every session, with every client. Uh, because to the person, there is some deficit by a, a, a damaging mom or dad and an unprotecting mom or dad. Do you understand? There, there's a threatening parent and there's an unprotected parent in almost all dynamics of my clients. That has happened. And as a result, a little girl experiences a distorted, damaged view of self without a protecting parent to help offset the damage of a threatening parent. Or the little boy, same thing. Huge deficits. The little boy experiences the wrath of mom without a protecting dad or the wrath of dad without a protecting mom, or in worst case scenarios, both. And that stuff, remember the amygdala, learns quickly, never forgets. They carry that stuff into the adult world. That is why we understand that children believe how parents behave. Children believe how parents behave. And so if mom and dad have this, have a sense of being calm and, and, and loving and kind gestures and words are the normal routine of the day, man, it's the coolest ever. It is absolutely cool. And the child, the child learns to be at home in that, okay? Makes sense? Now, a couple more things, and, and we're going to go into some scriptures that I think are going to really help lock some stuff down. So let's talk about what self-esteem is. In our culture, self-esteem is simply this. I see myself being seen by you. Okay? I see me being seen by you. So if Cana, my dear sissy, if she sees me and she goes, she smiles at me and she says nice things to me, what do you think she's doing for my self-esteem? Build it. Because I'm literally feeding off of her. I see myself through her eyes. And so if Cana, if I see her seeing me and being kind to me, then I feel good about myself. But if, but if Cana says to me, you are the shortest, dumbest, most boring little white guy I've ever met in my life, what do you think my self-esteem's going to do? It's going to go, it's going to blow up right then and there because Cana thinks I'm stupid. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> Yes, and she's laughing to affirm that she probably does think I'm a goofy little guy. You know, humor sometimes communicates truth. Did you know that? <laughs> so, I see me being seen by you. Now, there's something deceptive about the title self-esteem because it's really no such thing. It's more like other esteem, right? It's really other esteem. Because if, if I had the coolest new car you could get off the lot in 2018... And I had nobody to show it to. It's not so cool. <laughs> right? You want to show off your stuff. Why? Because you've been bitten by the bug. You've got self-esteem, which is really other esteem. And so if you can, if you can wear that great new outfit to work, you, you kind of strut in because you want to be noticed. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, part of that, please understand, it's just biology. We're wired that way, okay? We're, we're wired to be sensitive to how people see us. Did you know that women, because of their brain design, are far more efficient 
in reading facial cues than males. For example, okay, Dave, Dave, you know, Big Dave Steinman comes in the room and sees Gordon, and, and Dave's had a lousy week, and he's just tired, he's got his little cranky britches on, and here's Gordo, you know, he's busy too, and they see each other, and they go, hey, yeah, coffee, yeah. And they're doing good, everything's great, okay? But if Joni and Debbie walk in the room, in nanoseconds, Joni goes, what's wrong? What's the matter? No, did you have a bad week? I can tell, you know? It's just, in nanoseconds, they're reading facial cues. This is all, by the way, empirically based. It's all measurable. <coughs> Women, because of their brain physiology, can read cues far more efficiently than males can. That's, how, that's God's genius, okay? So, two things. Number one, I want you to understand how healthy it is to admit that you're a live, living, breathing, biological creature, and this stuff is real, and you do it every day. We relate to people. Don't ignore the biological facts, right? Number two, don't ignore the fact that you are a product of your culture. You are. For example, let me demonstrate this, okay? A black may be culturally conditioned to believe that they have less worth when compared to another race. Their culture produces that idea. Or flip it, any, any race you want. You know, this particular race is culturally conditioned to believe that they're better than. You can go any direction you want. How about this one? Someone who is a male may be culturally conditioned to believe that they have greater worth than that of a female. You could flip it if you want to, push it any direction you want. Or someone with a high ACT score is culturally conditioned to believe that they're better than a person that got a 14 on the ACT. Or someone with different physical traits may be culturally conditioned to believe that they have greater or less worth when compared to another person. Like skinny people are good and fat people are bad. Or healthy people are good and sickly people are bad. Or guys with no hair are just handsome, you know, like a goatee, man, looking fine, you know. But the other guy, you know, like Einstein head, you know, if I don't dry it just right, it goes everywhere. Well, I can't be cool because I, I don't look good with a bald head. I mean, we got, it goes in any direction you want it to go in, right? By the way, do you think the word comparison should be brought up here? Mm. By the way, ladies, who do you dress for? Tell me the truth. You're in church. Other ladies, it's, come on, admit it, it's true, right? Why? Because you see yourself being seen by the women, and you're dressed competitively. <laughs> That's what you do, right? Now, guys don't do anything. You know, like, my truck's bigger than your truck. <laughs> yeah. If you get stuck, I'll pull you out of the ditch in my big truck. <laughs> we compare, you know, we do stuff like that, too. So. How much do you get? I bench press 315. So I don't, but that'd be cool if I did that. That'd be the most awesome. <laughs> so you have high self-esteem. Yes, I do. <laughs> I am so secure. Oh my gosh, you have no idea. <laughs> so wow, we are influenced by culture. When you have self-esteem. You are caught up in the idea that what matters is on the outside, not on the inside. Okay? 
You have a kind of very exterior kind of view of yourself. All right. Are you ready to get into some scripture? <laughs> please, please. I came to church for scripture, not for you, buddy. I understand. I understand. And this is the fun part of when you do a series like this, a topical series. There's normally a lot of backstory to work on. Uh, and I know you, we, we are so heavy, heavy oriented in scripture at Christ Church. So, so bear with me. But let's check this out. Let's do, let's do some scripture. And you tell me if you see something here. Well, let's get it going. Here we go. Luke eleven thirty nine. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. Do you see self-esteem in that? Worried about the outside? How you look? Do you see the damage of that? What about Luke 16? If, if, man, this one's razor sharp. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, you are those who would justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Wow. How's that for driving it home? Okay. How's that for addressing the core issue of self-esteem, which means I am my, my, the estimate of my worth depends on how you see me. How dangerous that is. What if you have spouse esteem? Okay, Dave and Joni, the ideal poster child couple right there. All right. Okay, and, and Dave's had a bad day at work, and Dave comes home with those grouchy pants that he has in the closet, and he smarts off to Joni. If Joni has David esteem, Guess how Joni feels right now? Pretty worthless because Dave's being a grouchy bear again, right? But the next day he comes home and he's all, he's all about family life. Hi, beautiful. How was your day? I love you. You're the most wonderful wife I could ever imagine. He says all these great things and all of a sudden Joni's self-esteem goes up. Well, yeah, I mean, we appreciate hearing nice things. We don't want to hear bad things. But if she's dependent upon him for core identity, depends on him, her self-esteem might be doing this. Depending on the mood her husband's in. Does that sound like a recipe for trouble? Well, sure it is. Sure it is. Or vice versa. You know? Guy comes home from work, expects his wife to have, you know, a smile maybe. Maybe meet him at the door with a kiss or something, you know. Like, hi, babe, I missed you. Something nice. And, and instead she starts right in and how frustrating the kids are, the grandkids and the dog. Pete on the carpet again, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's going like, well, <coughs> she doesn't even care about how I feel. And so if he has wife esteem, it's, he's all over the charts. Not healthy. Makes sense. He's not healthy to do life that way. Look at, look at 1 Samuel 16, 7. Quick backstory. Uh, Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, was, a, was a failure as a king. Got into a bunch of trouble. He loses his kingship. Samuel, the prophet, is sent to a particular area to, uh, by God to find the new king, to anoint the new king. Well, this guy named Jesse has all these sons, and he starts parading the boys, his sons, in front of Samuel. And there's one, Eliab, particularly tall, particularly good-looking, probably got a, a 36 on the Hebrew ACT <laughs> score on camelology. Brilliant boy, brilliant. 
And, and Jesse's like, here's, here's my son. Like, this is it. He looks like a king, don't you think? Right? And God says to Samuel, by the way, Samuel's been bitten by the bug too. Sam thinks probably a tall, good-looking king is maybe a more effective king. So Sam's been bitten by the bug. He's messing up here. And God says to Samuel, do not look at the appearance, his appearance, or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. Being tall and good-looking and smart does not qualify you to have worth in the eyes of God. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Wow. Wow. Self-esteem can be really, really dangerous and can lead to lots and lots of damage. So, all right. Now, deep core anger. When someone has low self-esteem, been damaged by a mom or dad, an abusive parent and a non-protecting parent can make you just miserable to live with. When you have deep core anger and everything's a hot-headed reaction to everything because of your parents, boy, you're just miserable to live with. Okay. Or deep core shame. You're so worthless. You have such a lack of worth that you can't trust anybody around you. That, that's tough to live with too. There's a better way. A better way. And that is certainly the way of Christ is to you. So, all right, time's up. Um, give me some feedback. You know, you're the church. You're the body of Christ. I know today we have, today we have people gifted in all kinds of gifts. If you're going to speak and give comment as though the Spirit were speaking through you, what would you say? Why does this matter? What wisdom can you give about how we should see and value ourselves? What would you say? Take a few minutes to open it up to you all, and then we will uh, we'll worship. Joan. It was interesting when you used us as an example there. <laughs> Dave, what do you use? Dave. <laughs> there used to be a time in our younger married years where his mood would affect me and I would have to think through, you know, where did I go wrong or what can I do? But when I got things straight where my identity really was, my identity is in Christ. Yes. I am better off and he is better off by me not responding to his ups and downs. And it's vice versa. I have a down day or something or other. It's better for him to not respond to what I am doing in the same way because it's his identity. Yeah. Once he discovered that, it makes all the difference. Yeah. Did you hear what she said? Once you discover that your identity in Christ is real and it really does apply to you, it can, it can calm down so much stress, so many unhealthy reactions in your relationships. You can begin to enjoy life. You don't have to worry about what other people are yes. thinking yes. of you because yes. you're moving in the spirit. Yes, yes. Now, can we, can we, you know you can fall off a horse on both sides and get hurt? Okay. Let's, we don't have to be like... You know, the, the lady in Walmart 
with leopard super tight leggings on and in a house coat and her curlers and her pink bunny slippers and she didn't give a rip about who sees her at Walmart. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, we don't have to be the, the lady that spends 10 hours <coughs> meticulously getting her hair ready or her makeup on worrying that one hair might be out of place. Or the guy who doesn't care if he shaves whether or not for four or five days and body odor and scratching his beer gut while he's in line at Walmart and just and belching in public. Like, there's no regard for social etiquette. No, we don't have to be that to prove. We don't care about what people think. But that's really unhealthy. That's actually, again, another distortion of very damaged self-esteem. But nor do we have to be these perfectionist guys that think, I am what I control. I am what I control, and as long as I can keep things and people in control in my life, then I'm a good guy to live with. But when there's something I can't control, that 125-pound Rottweiler is coming off the chain, and nobody stops the rock. Does that make sense? Someone else. Why does this matter? Yeah, Jet, thank you. That's brilliant. By the way, we have ways of comforting ourselves, don't we, when we're stressed out? Right? Anybody here guilty of comfort food? No raise of hands, because in a crowd of this size, I am sure there's someone here. You know, you, you, the Rottweiler gets upset and, and needs to be consoled. And normally you take a basic instinct and you exploit it to get control. And so you've got comfort food. You've got comfort shopping. We call it retail therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. There's comfort drugs. There's comfort sex. Trying to derive meaning from physical things. There's comfort friendships. There's comfort complaining. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of ways. You know, sometimes the best thing to do with, with, when you have low self-esteem is to talk negatively about other people. It feels so good to do that, right? Badmouth somebody else, and you feel better about yourself. Blame somebody. Comfort blaming, right? God says to Adam, <clears throat> Adam, what, uh, what happened here in the garden? It's all worked out. Uh, <clears throat> Lord, it was that wife you gave me. <laughs> Eve, what's your story? Well, you know, the snake, it was the snake. He did it, you know. Of course, he goes to the snake, and he didn't have a leg to stand on. But, Cana, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I am seeing them see me. My self-esteem just went right down, right there. I'm in the dirt. <laughs> I can't tell a joke. It's a matter of uh, uh, timing. That's what it is. Okay, Mason. Somebody who's recovering from others' esteem. Um, I just want to point out the the importance of uh, accepting responsibility um, after the cultural effects upon us. Yeah. And so, especially within relationships, where.
whether growing up or friends or just society, <coughs> impacts us deeply, um, we are allowing them to give us that esteem. And so at some point, we have to accept responsibility that it's our job to begin to focus on Christ's esteem as well as pour into those unhealthy relationships in a healthy way without expectations of anything changing. Yeah. Mason, do you know that you're an answer to prayer in my life? Likewise. <laughs> Thank you. Boy, did we just feed each other's egos on that one. Did you hear that? Whoa. <laughs> but seriously, <laughs> he, leads, he leads Regen. On Thursday nights. Did you know this is what they deal with every Thursday night? The roots of it. Really? And how when there's a damage and distorted sense of self, you will compensate. You're, hey, the Rottweiler wants his share. Right? The amygdala wants his share. And he'll get it. And this is where you have the onset of addictions. And, and there's a myriad of forms that we get involved in addict, addictive behaviors. And that's what he deals with every Thursday night. Thank you for being a part of the answer. Thank you. And uh, Stephen, hold that thought. Uh, Mason, it's the front lobes where we take responsibility and, and we say, I am no longer going to be controlled by the 125-pound Rottweiler. I control the dog. The dog does not control me. And that takes quite a bit of brain muscle to settle that and be, and be responsible. Stephen? It's really important to know that we can't just turn away and manufacture our own esteem. Like you can't just insulate yourself from all of the, your culture and everything and just expect, well, I'm going to have self-esteem, so I'm just going to think good thoughts about myself. The piggyback off what Jeff was saying is it's also your culture. You know, just, you can be in the most positive culture in the world and still when that culture fails you, that positivity goes away. Or you can be raised in the negative. It's like feeding the dog. You can give it good food or you can give it bad food, whichever one. But, the, but all of those, a positive atmosphere or a negative one is going to be inconsistent. The only thing that's consistent is Christ, is God himself. Um, and so I want to read Hebrews 13. It says, let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. And those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money and being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my help, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the results of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today mm. and forever. Yeah. And so... If you want consistent esteem, it has to be rooted in Christ. Uh, because the most positive thinkers, uh, if your parents are just positive but they're not believers and they're not feeding you Christ, that positivity is going to fail at some point yep. because we're human. And then also on the other end, especially Christ is the only consistent thing. So if you're not a believer in this room and you're struggling with this, you can't just surround yourself with self-help positive things and be a part of seven groups seven nights a week. That's going to help you. It has to be rooted in Christ, and Christ is the only consistent thing. So mm -hmm. I encourage you to seek out Christ in the way he thinks. And it's all rooted, but there's a reason why we push Christ, why Christians believe in, in Jesus, because he is consistent. 
He's the consistent dad that you didn't have. He's the consistent mom that lets you know. He's all those things. And he's better than that. And he is consistent. Mm, Stephen, you've spoken such wisdom. So let's cap it by saying this. Jesus Christ is not a moody husband. He's not a moody wife. He's not a moody father. And he's not a moody mother. He's very, very different. Yeah. James one twenty five from the message says, But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye and sticks with it, is no distracted scatterbrain, but a man or woman of action, that person will find delight and affirmation in the action. Beautiful, Emily. So what if instead of being addicted to how you see me, what if I formed a discipline to see him seeing me. Game changer, don't you think? Yeah. Absolutely. We're just getting started in this. This is session one. It is going to be critical. Please stay with me for the next few Sundays. It's going to get better and better and better. Uh, so in the nine o'clock service, we'll walk through this. The songs that Stephen picked, I think, are so of the Holy Spirit because the words, you, you watch how this thing's going to dovetail. It is amazing. <coughs> The truth set to music that we're going to be, we're going to be focusing on. It's just, it's beautiful. I want to pray and bless Abba Father. Thank you. Can't wait to start singing. Would you please get our hearts open and ready in Jesus' name? Amen.